Michael Watson, and I'm joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. What connects the disruptive protests against a conservative judge's speech to Stanford Law School and the arrests of over two dozen demonstrators outside Atlanta? Both involved people aligned with the National Lawyers Guild, a radical left association of attorneys, law students, legal workers, and jailhouse lawyers. Joining me to discuss the National Lawyers Guild is our colleague Robert Stilson, who has written and researched extensively on the history of the Guild. Uh, Robert, welcome back to the Influence Watch podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to be back on. So we've had you on to discuss the National Lawyers Guild before, but could you give a brief summary of who they are, what they do, where they come from for anybody who might not be familiar? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a nonprofit. I think the, the main organization is a C4 and then there's a connected C3, but it's a nonprofit association of attorneys. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, jailhouse lawyers, law students, legal workers and and they are conspicuous just for their for their radical leftism, essentially, and, and they've been around a long time. This was an organization that was founded back in the 1930s. Um, it was noted for having significant communist influence through the 30s and 40s and 50s. Then it became, um, through the late 60s and 70s, was connected to the New Left movement and some of the um, more extreme manifestations of that movement, like even even to the extent of the Weather Underground, there were there were members of the National Lawyers Guild who were connected to to extremist groups like that, and they're still around today. And I think probably um, people notice them the most for for what they do at at, um, at protests. They show up and they, they wear these green hats. They say legal observer, and, and they they go out and they observe what the police are doing. They don't observe what the protesters are doing, and and they do this only at. Um, protests that they say align with their with their values so in in, in these are these are far left values so in, are, in practice um, antifa or antifa adjacent yeah stuff that is really even off the what i think a lot of people would think of as like the left right spectrum i mean stuff that falls you know and this is actually kind of interesting i was thinking about this you know a lot of times in our political discourse we talk we say left and right and what we mean is almost like liberal conservative, right? Like those, those terms are used interchangeably. And I think with a group like the National Lawyers Guild, you have to, like, they're not liberal. You have to move out outside of that paradigm. This is really in the, in the tradition of authoritarian leftism, not, not liberal leftism. So this is, this is, um, you know, Hugo Chavez red, type stuff. Red as in communist, not liberal as in Harry Truman. Exactly. Yeah. And I think so. I think when that's that's the thing people need to keep in mind when when you're trying to think about the politics of, of what's involved here. So bringing up authoritarianism, uh, Judge Kyle Duncan, who I believe was a Trump appointee to the Fifth Circuit. I think so. Uh, yeah. He's given a speech at Stanford Law and then chaos breaks out. What What's going on there? Yeah, there were a number of protesters, student protesters, who came to his. And he had been invited to speak by the Federal Society, the chapter of the Federal Society at Stanford, and asked to asked to give a talk. That's that's you know totally normal at any university. Should be totally normal at any university, um, any law school certainly. And there were a number, um, dozens, possibly even over a hundred. I think I saw uh, student protesters who showed up and just basically yelled him down, heckled him down, wouldn't let him give his remarks, and said said horrible things, you know, stuff that just beyond the pale for any professional uh, setting. And it got to the point where he had to be escorted out by, by U S marshals and was un, unable to, uh, 
to even give the remarks that he'd been invited to campus to give. And, um, and where, the, where this brings in the National Lawyers Guild, of course, is that it, it appears that a student chapter of the Guild at Stanford uh, was at least partially responsible for organizing these protests and certainly supported them after the fact, um, you know, put out a email statement saying, you know, this was the right thing to do. We're fully supportive of these protests. You know, that's, that's the essence of doubling down on mm-hmm. something, even if uh, after seeing what happened. Sarah, your, your thoughts. Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, well, f- first and foremost, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that this is authoritarian leftism, not just your sort of typical right versus left. We disagree on policy kind of stuff. Um, the National Review actually called them Maoists. I mean, they just came right out and said the Maoists at Stanford are, are mad again. <clears throat> so I'm glad that you that you um, mentioned that because I think implicit in that kind of um, characterization is this sort of animating hypocrisy that goes along with that. You know, you saw it at Stanford where um, I think the DEI dean came out, which we should talk about this person as well, because the Stanford Review just called for her to be fired. Um, during them heckling him during his, or his you know, planned remarks, she never got to, to say, uh, she, she kind of came out and said, you know, do you, do you understand why this is a good thing? Like, this is actually good. And while we do support free speech, don't you see that? I think she said, was the juice worth the squeeze? We, we are, we are recording this on Thursday the 23rd, and, and it was just published on the Wall Street Journal, her defense of herself. Oh, okay. Okay. So I guess, you know, that sort of, um, in, that sort of hypocrisy kind of impregnates uh, that kind of extreme authoritarian left. I think I'm right in saying that. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that's what I see. And so when I look at what happened at Stanford and I look at what happened in Atlanta, which we haven't talked about yet, I see that again because in Atlanta, for example, the Daily Beast was like, oh, well, the National Lawyers Guild lawyer who was there was just subserving, as you mentioned, the Green Hats. They just watch. They just watch to make sure nothing's bad. You look at Stanford and they're allegedly helping organize these things and certainly... Uh, uh, you know, helping after the fact uh, defend some of this behavior. So which is it? Is this this kind of hypocrisy does kind of seem to animate the authoritarian left. And I think we're seeing it in really fine fashion with this story on the National Lawyers Guild. What do you think? I think the theme you come back to in all of this stuff is the ends justify the means. And if and in law, in our constitutional government, you know, the means in many cases are the ends in and of themselves. You know, that's the structure we have set up is, is a means structure. And that's, that's the ends of, of governing. That's not how they see it. They see it as it doesn't matter, you know, what we have to do to get what we want. I think, I think that's the authoritarian left leftist current that flows through a lot and, of and in the in the stanford case you know where obviously we had this dei dean who was let us be charitable and say unhelpful in resolving the situation uh what you know it is the university you know obviously universities are usually pretty solidly on the left but you know we've we've we're sort of modeling this in a left versus the left way of the the liberal left, you know, the, not the ACLU of today, but the ACLU of 30 years ago uh, versus the authoritarian left, you know, where has the university come down on this? 
I think all in all, I'll, I'll let Sarah give her opinion too. But if, if we're talking about the response, uh, you know, the response of, of Stanford administrators, specifically the law school dean that I saw, I thought was pretty strong. I think I thought it was correct. I thought it was the right response. Um, you know, it's a, it, she put out a, I think it was a, like a 10 page statement explaining the decision, what was going to happen, why it was wrong. And I'm not sure how much more you could ask, uh, having had that happen. Um, and, and if you're from Stanford's perspective, well, how does this look like this is one of the top law schools in the country, which makes it one of the top law schools in the world. One of the most selective institutions of higher education in the entire country. You could look at it and say, and this is what that selection got us. We, you know, that this is what the selectivity got us, I should say. And I think Stanford said, no, 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 we, we can't have, no, this is, this is ridiculous. We've got to come down hard on this. And I think, I think they did. And I thought the response was appropriate and good. Yeah, I agree with you, actually. Um, I think Jenny Martinez That's was right. the dean that, that wrote the letter. And she was actually excoriated pretty heavily uh, because she and uh, and the can't remember which which other dean it was actually it may have been just this the the main Stanford Law School dean apologized to Duncan, and so they were both kind of taken to task by students um, who found that to be problematic. But I agree with you; the letter was very long. Uh, I liked that that she wrote it to the university, uh, the law school students, in terms that they could understand. Um, and I'll say this, you know, I pay attention to a lot of what's going on in the universities because I, I follow sort of that foreign funding story into universities. This, there is a pushback now against some of this, um, you know, anti-free speech behavior. I, I just sent you guys the other day something from Princeton where they've, a student group has now said, okay, you know what, this is a group where we're, we're fundamentally trying to protect free speech. So, I see things like this as actually a good thing. It's weird to say that because of how ugly this was, but it looks like the consequence is that there's some reaffirmation of free speech on, on at Stanford's campus. I agree with you. I, I think this is in, um, you know, I don't know. We, we, there, a few months ago, there was an inst- instance at, uh, I think it was Hamline University in Minnesota where there was an academic freedom debate on, on what you, on images you could show in an art class. I think it had to do with, could you show images of, of Muhammad without, you know, in an art class? And, and there was a major uh, blowback after they um, essentially, my understanding is terminated the professor who showed those images even after proper warning. And so I think, and there, there was a, a huge blowback within the university and outside on that issue too. And I think this is a continuation we're, we're seeing that pushback. So moving on, uh, Sarah, you mentioned what's going on down in Atlanta. You, you live in Georgia, right? I do. I live right outside of Atlanta, about 10 so minutes outside of the I city. I throw it to you. <laughs> what is going on with Cop City? It's just basically a planned training facility. Like all cities in the post-pandemic sort of era, can't even call it an era. It hasn't been that long. Um, policing has become, you know, an issue because of the defund the police efforts and things like and that. Also, so and, and Atlanta the decided that they that attended the post Yes, exactly. And you've also got places like Buckhead, which is very much a part of the city of Atlanta, trying to separate themselves and and field their own police force because they feel like they're being ignored. So Atlanta's trying to shore up its policing, and it's not a bad thing, but in order to do that, they have to have a training center. 
So they have this, uh, you know, piece I, I will, of land south of the city I, that they were going to develop I, I will a training center on. And it's essentially you know, the left Antifa. Always believes that if you throw more money at public services, they get better, except cops. The one public service that they don't want to throw more money at to make better. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a really good point. You're right. Uh, so basically Antifa, I think it was primarily Antifa, descended on the city. There have been some protests. A young man was shot and killed. Um, I think he actually fired first, but he was shot and killed on the Antifa side. I think today we learned that there's uh, some bond hearings going on. Well, one of the gentlemen that was arrested was a National Lawyers Guild member. Actually, he was he was characterized as working that for being, the National the Lawyers Guild law, and the, the SPLC. Um, but as I mentioned a few minutes ago, and, and Robert yeah, knows about this very well because he's written. Yes, um, Robert's written about the green hats. This sort of notion, yes, uh, these green hats, you know, this notion that they're just down there observing and not actually inciting or inspiring or encouraging is kind of. Again, it's just, it's kind of funny then when you look at it in, in terms of what happened at Stanford, where they almost certainly were encouraging that kind of behavior. So that's what's going on in, in Georgia. And, um, you know, the question I actually have about this, the one question I really have is how close, you mentioned that National Lawyers Guild is, is very far left, but how close, we, we look at the money behind these groups, right? We look at some of the funding that goes into them. That's part of what we do here at Capital Research Center. How close to, quote, normal does National Lawyers Guild get when it comes to who's funding them, who's supporting them, who's encouraging their, their group to continue their activities? What do we know about that? Well, as far as the funding, I mean, they're, they're incorporated as a uh, tax-exempt organization, you know, 501c4 for the main group, and then there's a 501c3 foundation. There are chapters that are either fiscally sponsored or might have their own tax status. The funding's tricky. You know, I, I went back and I looked at that at one point and you have the found the, the C3 foundation, which does send money to the C4 guild. But then when you try to see who funds the C3 foundation, you end up with a lot of donor advised funds. And that's kind of a, that's kind of the stop because you can't go st one step beyond that for folks who don't, don't know about donor advised funds. You know, that's a, these are C3 charities that are set up. And what you can do is if you're an individual donor, you can, you can get an account there and donate to the account. So you're donating to a C3 charity and you take the tax, tax deduction and, and, the, and the money stays in the account. And then at a certain point after that, it doesn't really matter how long, you can recommend another charity to support. And the donor advised fund who you've already donated to gives that money to, to, the, to the recipient. So, so what this means in practice is that when you're, when you're looking at you know, 990s and you're looking at who funds what, you see these ginormous multi-billion dollar donor advised funds it looks like they're the ones giving all the money but you have to understand that they're yeah, just they're, the, they're, they're, they're a, just they're the a conduit. charitable account in the middle right that's not where the money is coming from in the sense that we, we they're talk a about. conduit now one, one thing i will i will ask right so yeah one, so one thing i will ask in the case of the national lawyers guild, um are the donor advised funds that are funding national lawyers guild are they the big corporate ones that are non-ideological or are they ones with an ideological bent That's that's a good question. I, I for there are some that are um, 
like the non-ideological ones, like you'd have like the, the Fidelity Investments Charitable Gift Fund, which I think is the biggest one. And that's totally, that's just non-ideological. But then you also have the Tides Foundation, which which is ideological. That would be one that, you know, significant money has flown through that I found. This is all available on our Influence Watch website under the uh, NLG Foundation uh, page. And so you've got groups like that, um, th- that funded, but it's primarily donor advised funds. So now is... So basically then what you're saying is, and we're not, we're not, we don't hate donor advised funds. It's just, it's kind of a smart way to kind of, you know, not hide because that, that implies that they're trying to do something wrong, but it's a smart way to keep sort of the investigation into how things are funded harder to determine. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have nothing against donor advised funds. I just, the, the explanation mm-hmm. is just for listeners to understand that if you ask who is funding this, well, you know, there, there comes a point where because of just how these things work, you just can't so answer that question. One other mm-hmm. qu- sort of substantive question about the National Lawyers Guild, which is kind of two questions. Uh, so we've, we've had this situation in Stanford where National Lawyers Guild associated people are you know, trying to shout down a conservative speaker. We have the situation in Atlanta where National Lawyers Guild associated people are allegedly involved in these violent demonstrations. Uh, Is this typical of how National Lawyers Guild operates? Is this kind of what they do? I mean, I think... I would say they've always been connected to some form of radical leftist movement. I, I would say that that's a consistent feature of their history from the 1930s to to today. Um, you know, I think they would characterize their role as observers, as um, you know, we're just there to make sure the protesters' rights aren't violated. But that's a that's a really tricky line. That is that the line between activism and support when you're supporting activists is really thin and tricky. And I think that I'm not sure how you, how that distinction gets made practically in a lot of these cases. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting and we're seeing it a lot right now with how um, fraught everything is. So we have this situation at Stanford there's this debate or this argument over, well, we have our free speech rights as well. Duncan has his, we have ours, you know, all of this. Then you get the letter from the dean saying, okay, we're going to shore up the fact that everyone has their free speech, you know, right uh, here at Stanford, that we, we um, encourage and support that here. Um, but you're still, you still hear from the very radical left that that's actually a punishment, that they're actually, something's being taken away from them because this guy being able to speak is actually a violation of their other rights, right? So how do we kind of, I don't know, how do we have that debate when it doesn't seem to end? That's like, that's like a rabbit rabbit hole that doesn't end. There is a, I guess, a current in left-wing advocacy, activism, agitation, ideology that, you know, our, our, um, you know, left wings, left wing riots are speech, and conservative speech is violence. And I mean, it's hard not to see the parallels here. I, 
I mean, I think that's that's an interesting. Both both those are both interesting observations. I would I would question what what rights what rights you would these students would point to that were being violated. I can't immediately think of them. Well. Well, one was when um, I did a bunch of reading before we sat down, so I, it's really fresh in my head to talk to you about this. Uh, Duncan apparently had uh, written an opinion in a case that had to do with uh, trans rights and using pronouns, uh, making uh, jailers, I want to say, if I'm right, use the pronouns of someone who had um, been uh, convicted of child porn or something like that. There's a Wall Street Journal article where it's actually Duncan's op-ed where he talks about that. And so one of their issues with him at Stanford was that he is denying trans people their right to be whatever they want to be. Um, so that's what I mean. Like his speech was was denying them something funda- fundamental. So I don't know how, I guess what I'm saying is how do we as protectors of debate you know, and free speech on any side, how do you negotiate that kind of argument? Well, I'm, I think this gets back to the question of, are we talking about the liberal left or are we talking about the far out authoritarian left that the national, I don't think we're talking. So when we have these debates, like, how do we do this? So what rights, you know, we're all talking in the, we, we suppose that we're all talking within the same uh, understanding of our societal framework is informed by the constitution, our practice, our jurisprudence throughout, throughout the centuries. We, we assume that we're talking within that same framework and with the national lawyers guild and these kinds, you're not, you're, you're talking outside of that framework. Um, so I think when we, I'm not sure that's a conversation that can be had because you have to, you have to bring certain understandings to a table when you have a, have a productive conversation with somebody. So certain like ground rules, you might say, I don't think that, I don't think that they think those apply to them. Uh, and I think that's, you know, if you go look at, if you read some of their material, which I have, it's, you know, they, they believe all police in prison should be completely abolished. They think the United States exists as a white supremacist country. That, that, that's the essence of what the United States is. And that's not, that you can, th- there is no productive conversation to be had with, if that's the belief you bring to the table, I'm not sure where you go from there, frankly. I mean, you could quote the line from Animal House, I'm not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. <laughs> you know you know what I mean though. I mean I think that there there's gotta be something. They walked out too, by the way. <laughs> In that scene they walked out too. I'm sorry, Robert, I interrupted no, you. I don't you were have saying more to add than what I just said. I just I do think um you just, you just, you know, the, the response, the proper response is to, is to do sort of what the, uh, the Dean of Stanford did and reaffirm what the ground rules are. Like, this is what this institution exists to protect. These are the kind of attorneys we're training here. You can disagree. There is a ton of room for disagreement. In fact, your professional lives are going to do, depend on your ability to accurately express your disagreement. But we, we're going to draw the line when we when we question fundamental constitutional well, that's a, concepts. That's, I think, a good place to end. Robert, is there anything else you're working on that you'd like to promote before we let you go? Yeah, you know, I, there's a con- the National Lawyers Guild, since we're talking about this, um, you know, there's something I, I wrote for our most re- recent magazine, and I, um, 
I don't think it's been posted yet, although I think the magazine has gone out. So it'll be up soon for folks to read. But there's there's a concept that I'm interested in that I think the National Lawyers Guild fits squarely within it was something that I call the anti-American left. And, it, it, and it, it's this current of leftism that I think fundamentally denies, um, you might say, American exceptionalism or or just the 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 basic idea that the United States influence in the world has been good. And I think that, and I write about the United, the national lawyers guild in the context of that, along with a number of other groups, you know, the democratic socialists of America. And so I, I would you know, direct folks who are interested in this once that's posted to, to read that, because I think it, it, it gets at this question that we've been talking about. There's gotta be sort of a, uh, a basic, framework for for what the united states represents to right. even have well, these sort of thank you again to my capital research center colleague robert silson for joining us we will link to his research on the national lawyers guild in today's show notes that's our show for this week we encourage our listeners to subscribe on stitcher apple Podcasts, or spotify and if you have subscribed thank you please leave us a five-star rating those ratings really help us find new listeners especially if they come with a positive review 